Amen, amen. Welcome to Eastview Christian Church. That's Jessica's story, and that's our story. Uh, the details might be a little bit different, but thousands of times over, the people of Eastview Christian Church have given our lives to Jesus Christ, and He's changed everything in our lives. And if you're here today as a visitor or you're watching online just by chance, you think, I think it's a God thing. And I think today could be the day where you give your life to Jesus Christ, and that makes all the difference, just like it did in Jessica's story. And so if you're here today and you want to talk about your relationship with Jesus Christ, text hello to that number on the screen. If you're watching online, uh, just talk to one of our hosts. We want to get you connected to Jesus Christ. We think that's the answer for the whole world. If you connect people to Jesus Christ, he'll change their lives. And Jessica is just another story that we get to see in that. In fact, two weeks is Vision Sunday. I want you to get stoked and excited about that. We're going to talk about this, this reality. We're going to try like everything to have a purpose towards winning every person in McLean County to Jesus Christ. No more. You wait for Vision Sunday, all right? Come back Vision Sunday. I'll talk to you. Well, guys, we're going to be in Mark 14 again, and as we prepare our hearts to get in there, Jessica's story reminds us that there's a battle going on. There's a fight. There's a spiritual struggle between heaven and hell for the souls of mankind. She had this long battle from her teens to age 30. But we live in a culture that is fighting, fighting mad. For some reason, the, the stance of the culture is, you want to go? And that's kind of how we face it. And, and I just started listing this week and praying through as I was preparing this sermon, as we go to a battle scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, I started thinking through all the battles that we're dealing with right now. And these are not just like we disagree. These are like, if you're on the opposite side, I hate you. Liberals, conservatives, Republicans, Democrats, Fox, CNN, gun rights, gun bans, the Supreme Court nominee, we're gonna fight. Donkey versus elephant, we're gonna fight. Russian troops at the Ukraine border, we're gonna argue. Inflation, we're gonna argue about the prices of everything. Midterm elections, y'all, guess what? Another election cycle is upon us. Oh, it's going to be beautiful. It's just going to be battle. The political battlegrounds come from the social fights that have been declared absolute truth versus my truth. Uh, you know, sexual fluidity versus male and female. Joe Rogan versus uh, YouTube. They're going to get him off this, this new place he's on too. Critical race theory versus white privilege. Respect for women versus a multi-billion dollar porn industry. Powerful corporations versus distrust of authority. Tech privacy versus tech explosion, right? Oh, what do you think about free speech versus hate speech? Beth Moore versus the Southern Baptist Convention. Dr. Fauci versus Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> Chicago Bears versus the ability to hire a new head coach. Vaxxers versus non-vaxxers, mask mandates versus max bans, COVID versus conspiracy theory, retirement investment versus people who are starving to death. Guys, you want to fight? It's on. And this culture is fighting, I believe, not because that there's really any change that's going to be made in the culture per se, but it's a reflection of the spiritual battle that's going on all around us. And here's the thing, you can find angry, everything I just mentioned, and I just stopped short. I had a lot of other uh, wars that are going on that I could have listed. But in, in every one of these, you can find angry, opposing, mean-spirited, and condemning voices that want to fight the other side. And unfortunately, many of these fighting mad voices are followers of Jesus Christ. And uh, so these are the battlegrounds of our day. And the question is this. And, and really, here, here's, the, here's the, the thing that gets us to Matthew or Mark 14. 
Um, what if none of these struggles is the battle that Jesus wants us to fight and win? What, what if none of those things I just listed that maybe some of you are passionate about, maybe as I mentioned, you're like, yeah. What if, what if it's those battles that Jesus is unconcerned with? When we go back to Mark and Gethsemane, the, the scene of this battle we're going to look at today, at least the battle that was getting ready to take place, Mark chapter 14, verse 43. If you're new to Eastview, we read the Bible every week, and we get into the Word of God, and we let it speak to us. So get ready. God's going to get in your heart whether you want Him there or not today. Don't fall asleep, all right? Mark chapter 14, verse 43. Here's the Word of the Lord. Immediately, while He was still speaking, Judas came one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and he said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of them who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have I come out as against a robber? with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us today as we return to the garden. God, here we are again, recalling what happened 2,000 years ago, your son Jesus in the garden, facing death, burial, and resurrection that saved our souls, that saved me and Jessica and thousands like us. And I just pray, Lord, today that you will come and speak to us in this moment. I pray that um, if there are those who have been hurt by the battle uh, of Christians, well-meaning Christians, that you would heal them today, that you would draw them to your son Jesus and to your church. God, I pray for those of us who are so willing and so ready to draw a sword in Jesus' name. I pray that you would teach us something today. We want to learn. That's what we are. We're disciples. We're learners. Would you teach us today? Whatever you want to say, God, say it through me by the power of your Spirit as I lift Jesus up. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we watched Jesus pray, and he prayed in agony and, uh, you know, sweat drops of blood. But today, prayer time is over. Now it's time for action, and he's getting ready to face his betrayer. He says literally to his followers, let us be going. Here comes my betrayer. And now as, I, as they wipe the sleep out of their eyes and they can begin to see what Jesus is seeing and anticipating, they look and they see, oh, these guys are ready for the uh, fight. Jesus' enemies are ready to fight. That's, that's nothing new. They come to the garden and who are the enemies? Well, the enemies are described there in verse 43. They're the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. These were the, the people that made up, these were the leaders that made up the, the, the Sanhedrin, the governing body of the Jewish nation in the first century, the chief priests. We're going to meet next week the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas. They were relatives. And then there's chief priests. They're kind of the guys that run the temple and run all the prayer stuff. And then there's the scribes. They just started off being guys who copied the word of God down, but they became experts in the law. And then there's what this, this word for, el, uh, for um, elders simply means old men. They're the old guys that have been around for a while, and they are the wise ones that lead Israel. And these guys have declared war against Jesus Christ. These are enemies of Jesus. It's already taken place in the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 11, verse 18, they were seeking a way to destroy him. 
Uh, Two days before this scene in the garden, on Tuesday of the Holy Week, in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2 of Mark, they were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Why were they mad? They were mad at Jesus because Jesus was stealing their people. He was stealing their thunder. He was stealing their authority. People were following Jesus and kind of wise to their, their craft and their lie. So Jesus is our enemy. So the best thing we can do now is kill him, and we're looking for a chance to do that. Well, Judas has given them this opportunity. And so Judas says, 30 pieces of silver, I'll turn him in, and we see this play out in the garden. He says, the guy that I kiss, that's the one. Arrest him. Kiss was a, a, a you know, total normal thing. I've been in, in a lot of places throughout the world, Morocco particularly, where you just greet, even guys, greet guys with kiss. You know, three times on the cheek, right? This is common. And he calls him rabbi, which means exalted one or high one because he's his teacher. And with that kiss, they get their signal and they come into the garden with bad intentions. I want you to see what they're carrying in verse 48. They come with, with there's a crowd and they come with swords and clubs. The crowd, by the way, is interesting to me. I can't spend a whole lot of time here, but in verse 43, it says that there was a great crowd. This word symbolizes a good group of people, probably more than 100 or 200 people are there. All throughout Jesus' ministry, the cool thing is he's been surrounded by crowds who want healing and they want prayer and they're amazed at his teaching. But here in the garden, he's surrounded by crowds who are his enemies. And they come with clubs and swords. The word for sword here doesn't, you know, don't think in your mind, you know, the three musketeers, you know, uh, this big long sword. Just think of a, a small dagger, kind of a smaller kind of sword. That's what the word indicates, something you could carry on your person. But they come with clubs and swords, and they're going to do damage with these clubs and swords. Who, who are these guys with the clubs and swords? Probably the Levitical priest whose job it was to protect the temple. They were the temple guard. John tells us that the Roman soldiers were also there. So likely uh, hundreds of Roman soldiers in the background going, we're just going to watch and see if things get crazy here. Guys, they came to the garden for a fight. They have clubs and sword. And it's it's so funny as they come to the garden, it's like, is Jesus and 10 guys, 11 guys. Judas is not even there. It's Jesus and and 11 guys. And you've come with an army. You're going to, you're expecting, uh, you know, some kind of pushback or some kind of fight. Even Jesus comments, and I love Jesus says, have you guys come out against like a a robber? I was just teaching in your, (laughs) I was just teaching the temple two days ago. You did nothing. Even he pointed out that, man, this is a weird thing for you guys to come and fight with me now. Listen, if Jesus had enemies who wanted to fight him then because they didn't, he didn't align with their teaching and their ways, then you and I should expect that those of us who follow Jesus are going to, we're going to have enemies. I know you don't want enemies. I don't want enemies either. I want everyone to like me. But the truth is, if I align myself to Jesus Christ, I am going to have enemies. They're going to align themselves against me. And the world wants to fight against us. You seem to understand that. The battle's real. The world wants to fight against us because we preach Jesus as truth. Once I say to you, Jesus is the only truth, some people want to go, yeah, because I want my own truth and I want my own ways and my own feelings to be right. Listen, I hope you read this later. I've got some scriptures there in your notes. But in 2 Timothy, there's a description of the last days that just describes our world and our culture perfectly. Listen to some of these phrases. In the last days, Paul writes to Timothy, there'll be lovers of self and lovers of money and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. There will be people who are proud and arrogant and swollen with conceit. They'll be abusive and unholy and heartless without self-control. 
Man, as the great theologians Bill and Ted once said, dude, that's us. That's the world we live in. And because we live in a world like that, he goes on to describe to Timothy, these are the people who, listen, oppose the truth. Whenever you say Jesus is truth, understand opposition says, no, there are a lot of different truths. So we have enemies because we declare the truth and people get mad and ready to fight because we declare Jesus is the only way. But this world also wants to fight because we preach Jesus as Lord. He's the truth, but he's Lord. And and he becomes Lord because he goes to the cross. And this is why he earns lordship in our life, because he took our sin and he died and he was buried and he rose on the third day. Now he comes back not as a good teacher, not as another Gandhi or a Buddha or some wise person or somebody who writes fortune cookies. He's not supposed to be a wise guy. He's not supposed to be just a good social reformer. He is, listen, Lord. He conquered everything, our death, our grave, our sin, A smattering of people are excited about that. Everybody else is too cold to clap. But listen, the cross is a picture of submission, but because of that submission, Jesus says, now you have to submit to me. I submitted to your sin. Now I am Lord. I will not be anything else. And this world doesn't want to submit. You know, the problem with the world that is selfish and self-serving and loves money and loves all the stuff that this world offers, it's really hard to give yourself up. But that's what the Lord calls us to. So why do people get ticked off when we preach the truth of Jesus? Because I'm telling them that they can't be in charge anymore. That's what he's telling us. Finally, the world wants to fight because we represent Jesus' church. Remember Jesus said, you remember this, we, we love this. He says, this is my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know what that means? The gates of hell are fighting against it. We're a part of the church. We're a part of the followers of Jesus Christ. And and admittedly, and I'll share with this in just a moment, we've had some bad seasons in the church. We've had some bad moments in church history that make us look bad. But the church is still the church, and we are the people of God. And because we are the people of God through Jesus Christ, there's a war going on. In fact, Revelation 12 says that Satan, when he was kicked out of heaven, he went down to earth to make war with the woman and her offspring. That's you spiritually. There's a war going on. And uh, the enemy's weapons of choice today are not clubs and swords. The the battle we're fighting today is not clubs and swords. It's really simple. It's words. It's the battle for words in the mind. And the world is winning. Through advertisement, through media, through music, through movies, through binge watching, through consensus and popular opinion, arguments, passionate blogs and media. There's a pressure now for us to hear the, the words of the world and lose the battle of the mind. So what are we going to do? Well, like the kids on the playground say, well, they started it. So often we feel like, too often I feel like, that Jesus' followers are ready to fight back. Well, they started it. Jesus' enemy came into the garden. We're just having a prayer time. Leave us alone. They came with swords and clubs. And too often our response to the world that fights against us is, well, we should fight back. So the gospel gives us uh, uh, several, every gospel gives us, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John gives us an account of this swinging of the sword in the garden. It's really hard to say sword swinging. You want to say sword swinging, but I don't think that's how you pronounce it. I'm sorry, that popped into my brain and I had to stop and, and correct that with you guys. Anyway, 
But, 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 but there's a lot of different details we get from all the different Gospels. Matthew, like Mark, doesn't tell us who the wannabe gladiator is. Neither does Luke. But John names Simon Peter as the guy. Simon Peter is the one swinging swords in the garden. And once again, we normally associate this failure with Peter, but they were ready to strike. All of them were ready to strike. Luke twenty two forty nine 49 says this. When those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord... Shall we strike with the sword? Peter didn't wait for the answer. He started swinging. He pulled out his dagger and he started swinging and he hit the first thing. He hit. Now listen, at first glance, Peter's kind of heroic here. I just want to say this. Peter is kind of doing something that's pretty righteous. Uh, uh, he, he's fighting for Jesus. And this can sound really, really good, right? You expect this from a follower of Jesus Christ. Number one, Jesus is his friend. If somebody came into your house or came to this church right now and started arresting your spouse or your kids or your grandkids or your friends or your small group, uh, you know, fellow members in your small group, if they started roughing them up, and you might be inclined to strike back. He's just going, Jesus is my friend. You're not going to mess with Jesus. You mess with Jesus, you mess with me kind of attitude. But he also um, might have just had this righteous indignation. We talk in this culture about injustice all the time injustice. Is there anything more unjust than a bunch of evil dudes who are power players in the, in the Jewish faith coming to the garden to arrest Jesus in secret by night? Jesus has not done anything. Jesus is innocent. He's done nothing but heal people, walk on water, teach love and, and, and respect for other people. Jesus is a good dude. This is not right. This is not fair. Maybe Peter goes, you know what? I will stand against injustice. Swing, swing, swing. Maybe the final reason is he just ticked off at Judas. I would be. Judas has been with me for three years. We've seen everything Jesus has done. We have experienced it. Judas has cast out demons in Jesus' name. Judas has preached sermons in Jesus' name. Maybe Peter and Judas, we don't know, but maybe Peter and Judas actually went on one of those mission trips, two and two. And Peter's sitting there looking at Judas going, are you serious right now? I'm going to kill you. And he pulls out, the knife, and he starts swinging. Now, here's what we find in this story. I've, I've always found humor in this story because I find humor in most things, but um, uh, I, either Peter was really, really good or was really bad. Either he said, like, I'm going to take off this guy's ear, or he just missed his head. We don't know. We don't know exactly what was going on, but what we do know is that Peter, he took his sword out, and he begins swinging, and he hits somebody. I don't even know if he's trying to hit the guy who's the high priest of the servant, uh, the high, uh, servant's high priest. Only John gives us his name. He's a real guy. His name is Malchus. He came to the garden probably because the high priest said, go to the garden. Make sure things turn out well. He's higher in the, as, it, as it goes with servants, but he's still a servant. He's not necessarily an innocent bystander, but he kind of is. I thought about this this week. This is weird. A guy named Malchus is the first one to shed blood in the salvation story of Jesus. And that's not what Jesus came for. So there it is. Within seconds, you know, the side of his head had to just be dripping. You know how head wounds are, right? And it just, it, it, his, his ear's been cut off. Blood is gushing out. It's all over his clothes. It's in his hair. He's, he's grabbing his going, oh my, there's blood coming down the side of his hand. And, um, and within seconds, this is where we see that Peter and Jesus are not on the same page. Jesus didn't go, yeah, guys, draw your swords, let's go. 
Jesus, what, what we're told is that Luke tells us, and Luke, by the way, is the only one of the Gospels that tells us that Jesus healed Malchus, and it could be because Luke is a doctor. Luke is going, well, I've never seen anything like that. I've never seen healing like that before. Jesus, the Bible tells us, touched his ear and healed him. The Bible doesn't say that he picked the ear up off the dirt and put it back on. The Bible says that he healed his ear. So I, I, in my mind this week, I'm going, was the ear still like on the ground or something? Or, hey, you need this? Oh, never mind. No, I'm good. <laughs> you imagine going home and explaining this to your wife? What happened to your, why, why are your clothes all bloody? A guy chopped my ear off tonight. Well, it looks fine to me. It's really hard to explain to his boss what happened in the garden. I got my ear chopped off. Well, what's, what's up now? I mean, now what's going on? Well, he healed it. And we begin to understand in the garden that while P Peter is bringing hurt in the garden, Jesus brings healing. And it's a picture of what he's trying to do. See, Jesus reminds Peter in Matthew 26, you can read all these passages later, they all give different details of the same story. Not conflicting, just adding. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, don't you understand that I could call 12 legions of angels right now to take these clowns out? Put your sword away. I don't need you to swing swords. I'm here for healing. I'm here to bring healing, not to hurt people. I'm here to die for Malchus, not kill him. An eyewitness, Matthew, remembers the Lord telling Peter, put your sword back in its place. And John adds, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Whatever we can say about this moment of bravado in the garden, we can confidently say that Jesus didn't want Peter to cut Malchus' ear off. That's not what he's about. Peter, I don't want you to fight here and now and in this way. So since we've been talking about battling in our culture and all the battles and all the words and all the things that are flying around us, maybe we should consider before we draw our sword. So I'm, I'm, putting, I'm putting three questions to ask yourself the next time you want to draw a sword in Jesus' name and start chopping people up. I, I want you to consider these three questions. By the way, if you're here and you're Malchus and you've been struck by a Christian or you're watching online and you, you don't know about the church and you don't know about Christians because some well-meaning Christian in the name of Jesus chopped your ear off, <laughs> join the crowd. But I'm asking you just forgive us and give us another chance because that's who we are as disciples. We mess up and we try again. And you'll find this with Peter. But now that we're here in the garden and now that we kind of know what the battle is, let's ask ourselves these questions before we draw our sword. Number one question is, before you draw your sword, Christians, who are you fighting? It's a very important question to answer. Who are you against? The government? Uh, the opposing view? People on the opposite side of something you're passionate about. Here's what Ephesians 6.12 says. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As Paul's telling us to put on our armor of God. Who, who are we fighting against? We're fighting against the cosmic enemy, the spiritual enemy. This is a spiritual war that's going on. This is not against flesh and blood. If you find yourself mad at flesh and blood, you're fighting the wrong battle. It's not what Jesus wants you to fight. I can say that very assuredly. Jesus is not against people. Jesus came to die for people. 
And if you, don't, if you don't understand this in the garden, Jesus doesn't want anyone to die in the garden. He came to die for Malchus. He came to die for me. He came to die for you. If he wanted to take us all out, that'd be easy. He'd just do another flood and leave Noah out. <laughs> he can do whatever he wants to get us out. But he decided he wanted to save us instead. And so he, he comes to die for us. So before you draw your sword, who are you fighting? The next question is pretty close to it. Before you draw your sword, are you fighting just like the world? Again, they came with clubs and swords. Peter goes, oh, sword, sword fight, let's go. I'm fighting just like them. He's got different power. He's seen different power. But he says, you know what? Sword fight, I got a sword, let's fight. But here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.3. Look at this. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. If you're fighting in the flesh, the same way everybody else is fighting, let me be specific here. How does the world fight? The world fights with words and ideas. Are you fighting just like the unbelievers in all these wars? Are you using sharp tongue responses on social media? Are you posting viewpoints and videos that make your point and said, I mean, you ever seen a video and go, eat it. That's just like the world. Or I will fix the entire politic in this one tweet. When they hear this one and read this one, the war will be over. No, it's just another sword drawn, probably another ear chopped off, probably another loss of our witness. Are you fighting just like the world? Because listen, Christians, Jesus doesn't want us to fight like the world. We walk in the flesh, but we don't wage war as they do. There's one final question before you draw your sword. I wish Peter could have asked himself all these. And honestly, let's just confess, I wish I asked myself these all the time before I responded. Okay. The third question is, are you angry? Are you drawing the sword out of anger? Because here's what I've seen. I've seen angry people over the last three or four years. The last two years have just been like an incubation for angry. And there's a lot of reasons culturally for us all to be mad. Okay? But when Christians get angry, it makes me a little nervous. Because here's what James says. James 1.19 is one of the first verses I memorized with my boys when they're little. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And look at this. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If you're swinging the sword and you're just mad, probably nothing gonna right, uh, righteous is going to come out of that or nothing going to righteous come out of it, as I like to say. Guys, are you angry? Because if you're angry, if you respond to this world in anger and you fight just like they do, all you're going to do is chop off ears and there's no righteousness that's going to be accomplished. Listen, over the last couple of years, I've had many, many opportunities for people to give me opinion about what I should say and what I shouldn't say. Do I say too much or say too little on any wide number of things. And, and many times over the last two years, people have pointed out to me, well, Jesus had righteous anger. Righteous anger is good. I'm like, yeah, it, yeah yes, but time out. There's two things that I think get in our way when we start talking about righteous anger. There's two problems when Christ follows you, righteous anger. Number one, I'm not nearly as righteous as I think I am. Jesus' righteous anger, flipping tables, yeah, he's, he's right all the time. Probably the right move. I sometimes am not righteous. And number two, I can get mad at some pretty shallow things. I can get mad when my coffee's not made right. I'm go back to Starbucks and give them a piece of my mind. I said two Splenda. 
I can get mad about a lot of things. I mean, really foolish things. But just because I'm a Christ follower doesn't mean that every passionate and bold and fighting moment in Jesus' name is right. I want you to hear that. Peter is fighting, swinging swords in Jesus' name for Jesus' sake. And Jesus says, put your sword away. I wonder how many times we're fighting the wrong battle because he's just saying to us, hey, put your swords away, Christians. There's a better way. One of the worst historical marks against the church is commonly known as the Crusades. You've probably heard of it if you paid even a little attention in school. But from 1096 to 1291, roughly in that period, several Crusades were launched from Europe into the Holy Land now to take back the holy relics in Jerusalem from the Muslim control. Estimates are all over the place, and they didn't keep record, but it's very possible that over a million Muslim people lost their lives in the name of Jesus Christ, people wearing crosses on their clothes and on their shields. And again, it's just a big swing and a miss for the church because Jesus never intended for them to go kill Muslims in his name so we could have Jerusalem back. Now, you might look at that historical thing, well, that doesn't happen. It happens all the time. And the question you have to ask yourself this morning is, are you a crusader who fights with the sign of the cross, or are you a follower who fights by carrying your cross? Those are two different things. Am I a crusader killing in the name of the cross, or am I a follower of Jesus carrying the cross? Because one is way more powerful than the other. The enemies of Jesus are ready for a fight. The followers of Jesus are ready for a fight in the garden, but Jesus is ready for the cross. That's how he's going to fight. Again, why does Mark give us so few details? Uh, Mark gives us few details because his point is not to talk about the fight in the garden. Remember, he started off this, we started off this whole study in Mark chapter 1.1. Why is he writing this book? I want to tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the gospel is impossible without the cross. There is no good news until Jesus dies for my sin. There is no good news till Jesus rises from the dead after three days. After Jesus dies for my sin and raises from the grave, hey, good news! Your sins are gone. You can live forever. Now I got good news to share. But good news doesn't come from a slaughter in the garden because Jesus wins. Have you noticed this word probably as I was reading verse 44 and 46 and 49 three times in this passage is the word seize. The word is a strong word. He's under arrest. It means to grab, to hold on to, to the strong arm. And they came to strong arm Jesus. And, and, and Judas was very clear. Listen, when I kiss this dude, seize him. Grab him. Take control of him. And Jesus says, I was, you know, just teaching two days ago and you didn't grab a hold of me. You didn't seize me. Why has Jesus got peace here now? Well, it's not used with this, but look at that verse again in verse 49. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. You're seizing me now because the scriptures say that you're going to. I, I wrote it this way in your notes, seized by the scriptures. Who's really seizing whom in the garden? Is Jesus under arrest? No, they're under arrest because what the prophets foretold seven, 800 years earlier is taking place. Who's in control of the garden? Jesus is because he's just watching them do their thing going, yeah, this is just as my father and I planned. This is just as the prophets prophesied. 
You guys are not in charge. You are not grabbing me. The Holy Word of God is grabbing you. And guys, I, if you want to know how to fight in this world, the only weapon I know, in fact, um, it's called the sword of the Spirit in the Ephesians 6 passage about fighting the battle that we're in. It's the Word of God. It's the living Word, Jesus and it's the written word, the Bible. And if you want to win in this world, if you want to win in the day of battling with words and ideas and thoughts, listen, just hold up the word of God. What if everybody in here this week just, just dedicated themselves to social media, just quoting scripture only? No opinions, no trash talk about the bears, no trash talk about you know, what we're into, no debates about politics or the flag or whatever you want to talk about. Guys, that's not going to win the battle. And it's not the battle that Jesus is fighting anyhow. The battle Jesus is fighting is to hold up Jesus Christ, the living word, through the Bible, the written word. And when you do that, strongholds fall. That's the sword. See, in fact, Jesus says these scriptures are going to be fulfilled. The aha for Christ followers in this sword-swinging garden scene is the battle is not in Gethsemane. It's at Golgotha. This is not where we fight. There's a bigger battle. Jesus' fight is not in the garden against those who came to arrest him. His fight is on the cross for the souls of all mankind, for Malchus and Jessica and me and for you. That's how he came to fight. And he doesn't fight to stay alive. He fights by dying so that we can live. There are three words that I want to leave you with today as we leave this garden. They're, they're all possibilities for disciples, for followers of Jesus Christ. They are these words. You can fight, you can flee, or you can follow. You can fight. You can fight the battles that the Lord doesn't want you to fight. And you can try to re-win all of eternity and all of salvation and all of your souls in the name of justice or in the name of whatever you're passionate about. You can fight. You can flee. That's what they end up doing. They run. You go, I don't want to get that close to Jesus and his way of battling. I'm afraid. Or you can follow. Following Jesus to the cross eventually means that you're going to carry a cross. You can fight in the garden or you can follow with a cross and one leads to victory and the other one just leads to people getting cut. May we be the people that take up our cross that follow Jesus, and we battle in an unconventional way by the power of the Son of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the power of his resurrection. Amen. Amen.